Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Film and Nick Stevens. On The Verge is part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. And we're here with tonight's episode to talk to Nathan Ruiz of the Baltimore Sun. The Orioles beat writer is joining us to talk about what's going on in the current collective bargaining agreement negotiations, as well as some of the interesting roster decisions the Orioles might be facing here in the coming weeks, both related to players who are currently prospects, as well as some players who are no longer prospect eligible. So, Nathan, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Well, we're glad to have you on. and. Let's we'll just start off with, uh, we've seen a lot of twists and turns lately in the negotiations with the CBA. There were more discussions uh, Monday afternoon between the owners and the players. Where do things stand right now? And with where we are in the negotiation process, do you think there's any hope at all of starting the regular season on schedule on March 31st? I think there is still hope. Uh, part of the thinking of them meeting today and throughout the week, the two sides being the league and the players union is, is to come to an agreement within the week. I think major league baseball's kind of quote unquote drop dead date in terms of not having an impact. The regular season schedule is February 28th. So, you know, we've got about a week until that, or I think exactly we can tell that day, time and days are all just kind of lost for me during the off season and spring trading was supposed to start a week ago and give me a calendar of some sort, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, but yeah, so th- they're, they're working towards it. Obviously, you know, there's a few different issues that are big focal points. Uh, the biggest one seems to be the, uh, competitive balance tax, which basically acts as a, as you know, a salary cap for the league. There are some obviously stipulations to that, that, that make it different from a salary cap, but that's basically what it is. That seems to be the biggest issue as well as the size of a pre-arbitration bonus pool for players who are in zero to three years of service. Um, obviously that second area probably will impact the Orioles a lot more, at least in the short term. Than, than the CBT will, unless there is a floor of some sort added to that, which has also been discussed, but not so much as part of these. It kind of worked through other things. But obviously, the Orioles have a lot of pre-arbitration players, um, so that that could have an impact for them in just in terms of, you know, what their players are being paid. But other things, you know, like the draft and whatnot could be could be fluctuated. It sounds like the league budged little today. It sounds like as part of the anti-taking measure, they're, they're adding a lottery and so the league went up from three picks to four picks included in that. So a lot of moving parts here. Um, it sounds like, you know, the two sides will kind of just keep giving each other an inch until hopefully they meet somewhere close to the middle and eventually an, an agreement's in place by February 28th and baseball can start in long after. 
hopefully. Uh, I think everybody was sitting on Twitter all day waiting for that the Jeff Passenbaum to drop. But uh, while we wait, how much fun has it been uh, for you to come up with all these stories during this uh, lockout in this winter period? And I know a lot of changes at the Baltimore Sun with John Mioli leaving. So uh, what have the last few months been like for you? Yeah, yeah, it's been it's a it's a tough situation to cover a baseball team in um, just because there's there's nothing happening. Um, you know, normally during an off season, you'll get the occasional roster move. They also, the Orioles really haven't even been active on the minor league side as much as maybe you would expect them to be. So that's been tough. There has been, um, you know, there was a move this week with Shed Long. So that was the first move of the year. Very exciting. I'm sure we'll all remember the first move of 2022 was the Orioles signing Shed Long to a minor league deal. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I'm sure you guys have, have seen some of the stuff I've been doing, but it's just been, you know, kind of evaluating players, looking at stat cast, fan graphs, just kind of digging into those things to, to come up with stories. And, you know, those have been fun in the sense that like they've given me ideas for what to do when spring training does come around and, you know, what to ask players about. Obviously the wall situation gave me like a week of things to do. And that kind of just popped up out of nowhere. And um, so that was interesting. And again, another fun thing to kind of dive into statistically and, and just look at it. But yeah, it's, it's been interesting. Obviously losing John was a little weird just cause you know, I've worked alongside him for the past three years, but um, you know, I'm, you know, he's still doing great work and I'm looking forward to kind of just continuing the tradition of what the sun's been doing the last few years. Getting to actual baseball questions now. Um, is there an area of the team where someone from the minor leagues, you could see breakthrough and earn an opening day roster spot. It seems like there's a lot of pitching openings right now, you know, considering what they could do once the lockout is lifted, but um, could you see anyone on the position side uh, win a spot over like Kelvin Gutierrez or even just a bench spot? Yeah, I mean, I think Adley Rutschman's kind of like the guy you circle in that regard, just because there isn't re- there literally is not another catcher on their forty man roster, and Adley's not on the forty man roster yet. But there is, so there is not a catcher on the forty man roster, and and so he's a guy who you know what we were talking about earlier with the the CBA negotiations, depending on how that sorts out and and what the motivation is for a team, because right now you know two weeks of Adley Rutschman in in twenty twenty two is not nearly as much as a full season of Adley Rutschman in twenty twenty eight. So. Unless, you know, the CBA makes a dramatic shift in, in how service time manipulation is handled and how, you know, teams are motivated to, you know, bring up a player or not bring up a player, I think that's an area to watch. Obviously, you know, third base is going to be interesting, I think. Um, like you mentioned, Calvin Gutierrez is a guy who you looked at his you looked at his numbers for like September and he had a really good September. But then you dive into it and, you know, the you know expected metrics aren't very good he hit a ton of ground balls and so it seems like he just kind of got a lot of batted ball luck and that that's going to happen but over you know a course of a season you're, you maybe do that for a month but you're not going to do it for a full year so um you know that's something to watch i think obviously ryland ban is a guy who's already on the 40-man roster um you know you've got a lot of other guys who are in in that prospecty range like obviously jemai jones is, is is still considered a prospect and he's a guy who you know you look at what he's done um over the last over the last season with the Orioles you know obviously in the major leagues didn't have great numbers really wasn't you know crushing it in double a or triple a excuse me either so um it's tough to see just because there are some guys obviously Kyle Stowers at some point will show up but I don't think he's an opening day mix especially just not being on the 40-man roster and given their depth of outfielders it's interesting you actually just wrote about Jemai Jones today correct over at the sun um what struck me in that piece was how much he was laying off pitches in the strike zone uh, when he got to the major leagues last year, do you sense that's going to be a problem that the Orioles are really going to have to work to address with him? Well, it's interesting because as I'm sure you guys know, like they've done all this swing decision stuff, like that's huge for them up and down the organization. And so when you look at um, in terms of, you know, that thing that the number you're referring to, I think it was of the two strike pitches thrown to him in the strike zone, 
he only swung at 70%. And that might sound like a high number, but for, for players who had as many plate appearances as him, only pitchers swung at fewer two-strike pitches in the strike zone. So it, it's pretty significant when you're ranking, and the only pe- people below your pitchers. So um, and, and I think for him, a lot of that, when you look at what the pitches were, they were borderline or they were maybe off the plate. In, in some cases, he struck out 13 times looking in 72 plate appearances with the Orioles. And I think four or five of those pitches easily could have been called balls. Um, and so obviously that doesn't guarantee that he would turn around and, and get a hit in the at-bat. So that doesn't completely change the story of the season. But when the Orioles are so focused on, you know, find your pitch that you can do damage on, that is the organizational focus. And so while it could be viewed as, you know, a concern that he wasn't more aggressive, that he didn't take more advantage of pitches in the strike zone, it could also be viewed as he, he's doing what the Orioles are training him to do. It's different in AAA where, you know, if you strike out, then they say, you come back to the dugout and they say, hey, that was a good decision. You're fine. But if you come back to the dugout after striking out of the major leagues, like you don't get an attaboy. So it's, it's a, I think that's a growing curve that a lot of prospects will see go through. It's I kind of remember. touches on one of the big moves before the lockout, which was the Orioles hiring Ryan Fuller and Matt Borg Salty as their new hitting coaches. Um, with them at that position now, what do you think it says about the direction the Orioles are planning to take? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it f- kind of follows the guideline of what what they've done since Michael Elias and Sigma Dallas have gotten there. It's just, you know, data-driven um, practices. You know, they're not just kind of winging it. And that's not to say I was not around for the previous regime. I started in 2019, so I didn't get to see any of that firsthand. But from everything I've heard, you know, it's obviously been a complete change in the organization practices. And so I think this just kind of is a continuation of that. And obviously Don Long and co were, were doing those things, but um, you have two guys who are kind of bred in it and have these, these backgrounds where this is kind of what they know and what they've done. And, and, and so I think, especially when you look at in, in Ryan Fuller's case, the familiarity he has with guys who will be coming up um, and, and having worked with them, like we, we see that, you know, throughout the minor league coaching staff with, with, you know, Kyle Moore moving up and Buck Britton moving up like they're, there's some continuity here, and, and that's really the big focus in any department of the organization is making sure that guys are not kind of getting a, one message to the left and a different message to the right, like making sure that whatever they're hearing, wherever they are, is the same message. So you talked about Ali Rutschman uh, a couple minutes ago, but let's let's assume, that, although I, I hope and pray that opening day he is the, the starting catcher, but let's assume that he's not. Um, what direction do you think the Orioles will go if Rutschman starts the year back in Norfolk? Uh, what, you've been doing these player profiles. Uh, what have you learned about these new guys, Bim Boom, and, and some other guys that the Orioles have brought in? Yeah, I haven't dived too deep into them um, too much. It's funny because it's very possible that Jacob Nottingham and Anthony, or Anthony Bamboom, like one of them could be the opening day catcher for this team. And, and that's just kind of the situation they're in. Obviously, you know, we, we saw you go back to even 2019 and Pedro Severino came in on a late spring waiver claim. It seemed like Francisco was going to make the opening day roster. And then he ends up in AAA after they claim Severino. So I would not be surprised if they, you know, some team's third catcher falls off the 40 man roster and gets claimed in late March or April or whatever it ends up being at this point, and and that guy ends up as their opening day catcher. So, um, it, it it's tough to know. Obviously, you know they're in in Ben Boom and Nottingham, the two guys who are actually already in the organization. They are guys with major league experience. Neither of them is necessarily like full season starter material, or at least has not shown to be that. So they fit the mold of what you maybe would want for in, in a guy with major like behind Adley, you know, guy with major league experience who who has had some success up and down the minor leagues, and so. It, it'll be interesting to see how it all gets sorted out and whether, you know, Adley just is so apparently the best catcher in the organization and, you know, not putting him on the opening day roster is a crime, but 
like I said, you know, the service time aspect is going to what's ultimately going is is ultimately what's going to be the, the determinant factor here. And so it's it a lot of it just hinges on what happens with the CBA over this next week or two. I mean, did you see him in that makeshift uh, home run derby that he was doing in in some uh, off field? That was pretty impressive. I think he's going to get the job. Now, um, it seems like you know with the pitching, the Orioles in a tough spot right now with you know missing the 2020 season uh, in the minor leagues for the pandemic. You had guys like Alexander Wells and Zach Lowther who came up and seemed to be punished the most from you know missing that real AAA time and they kind of failed out at the major league level last year, but they still have time. But do, you know, you sign more guys like Jordan Lyles just to get the innings or do you give these guys a second chance? What do you think about that? I, I think it's interesting because obviously they've got a situation where now you really have, you're, you're not paying Jordan Lyles to not make your opening day rotation. You know, John means is going to be your opening day starter in both cases, assuming health. So that leaves you with three spots for a group of, you know, pitchers right now that, you know, beyond the two guys you mentioned in Wells and Lowther, you got Keegan Aiken, you got Dean Kramer, you got Bruce Zimmerman, you got, you know, Mike Bauman. So that's six guys who who pitched for you in the majors last year, who none of whom really had much success and who all were kind of impacted by that lost 2020 minor league season. And and so I think you give those guys a run, but I also think you see the Orioles do, you know, uh, uh, in the vein of what they did last season with Wade LeBlanc, Felix Hernandez, Matt Harvey, sign some of these, you know, veteran guys. I, I mean, Matt Harvey did what he was supposed to do for them. He gave him, you know, I think 150 or something innings, and maybe not that much. Maybe might be shooting that by quite a bit. But he gave them uh, a – he was relatively durable compared to what most of the Orioles' starting pitchers were. So he, you know, provided them what they needed. Obviously, I think if you take three lottery tickets like they kind of did, and, and one of them ends up pitching into your rotation into August, you take that. Um, ideally, one of those guys, you know, you look at what ended up happening with Tommy Ballone the year before, and you get, you're able to flip him for a couple prospects. But – I, I, I'm sure that they add, you can never have enough pitching and that's kind of the old adage. Um, but I, I'm sure they'll make some additions, but I'm sure that at the same time, um, if, if one of those six guys becomes a reliable major league starter, then, then I think the organization in the long term would be pretty happy. And do you, there, you also have guys like you mentioned, Michael Bauman and Kyle Bradish. Do you think they'll have a legitimate chance to win a starting rotation spot out of spring or, start him in the bullpen and like John Means did a few years ago and then earn his way into a rotation spot or go back to AAA. There's a lot of options they could do with those guys. Yeah, I mean, I think the Means situation is a little different because the Orioles, I think even when he made the opening day roster, they kind of saw him as organizational filler to an extent. They're like, crap, we need a, a lefty long guy. Like, let's just put him in the bullpen and see what happens. And obviously we've seen what he's done from there. So I, I think that's a little different circumstance than, you know, two prospects who's, um, who are viewed, you know, pretty highly two top 15, top 10 guys. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that Bradish breaks camp. Bauman, I think, is a possibility just because the Orioles have already brought him up. You know, obviously the organization views both those guys highly, but, you know, depending where you look in the industry, both of them have a have a reliever tag in the future. Some of them, you know, flip-flop. One of them, some organization industries, you know, or some, you know, folks in the industry view one as a starter and the other as a reliever and vice versa. So I, I think, you know, all those guys, that whole group, um, you know, anyone on the 40-man roster right now is being viewed as a starter. But I also think when you kind of look at the composition of the bullpen that, you know, at least one or two of that that whole, you know, freshman, sophomore-ish group is going to end up, um, you know, at least one of them is going to end up being a long reliever in the bullpen, just given how things are kind of shaking up the roster right now. Yeah. I want to ask about one more pitcher uh, of that group in Kramer, because I feel like he's a guy that he's kind of mixed, you know, with, with our group, our Patreon group. I know there's a lot of discussions about Dean Kramer. 
the Orioles fans in general seem kind of mixed on him. What's the, the vibe on Kramer around the organization or your own opinion about Kramer? Was, was it more mental with him last year or do you, do you see something in numbers, maybe something mechanical that really stood out to you? It's like, this is fixable and Kramer can still be a, a viable option or um, what's the general sense with him right now? Yeah, I think to your point about mental, I mean, I remember, I mean, it was over Zoom, so it's hard because um, we didn't really start talking to players. We never talked to players post game in person, so we never kind of got to look them in the eyes and see what they're feeling. But just even over Zoom, after that Toronto Blue Jays game where, you know, gives up the grand slam in the first inning, and that was his, you know, his last his last game basically in the majors for the year before that one doubleheader start, you know, he was, he was pretty beaten up looking. He looked pretty down. He's, he's not like the most talkative guy in post-game interviews regardless, but you you could tell that that one really had worn on him. And I don't know if they had already told him even before he did media that he was going to get sent down or, or what the exact situation was. But you could tell that, you know, the whole situation it hit him pretty hard. And you look at the picture he was in 2018, obviously leading the minor leagues in strikeouts. So there's a history there. And when you when you look at what he did back in 2018, that was really built on, on fastball curveball. He's worked in a cutter quite a bit. Um, the cutter was actually his best pitch in 2021. So I don't want to imply that using the cutter is, is what's hurting him, but he actually is, you know, instead of mixing in the cutter with the fastball and curveball, he's kind of taken away from the curveball to go to the cutter. I think if we see him get, you know, kind of a three pitch mix back, obviously throws a change up as well. I, I think if he just uses his secondary pitches more often, it isn't so fastball heavy in terms of both four seamer and cutter. I think that's interesting. Obviously, you know, he's had some success with the curveball in the past and getting that pitch to work for him again, I think would go a long way. You could say the same with Bruce Zimmerman as far as, you know, not throwing a fastball as much and go more to the off-speed stuff. And we saw Kramer pitch much better when he was throwing to Adley Rutschman. So maybe that's all it takes. That, that's the key. I'm sure that when Adley Rutschman shows up, all of them got, all those guys will have mid-three ERAs and will be like, oh, he was the key all along. That's, <laughs> that's the magic trick. So looking at a different part of the organization now, Cesar Prieto was a transaction the Orioles made last month. You wrote about him pretty extensively over at the Sun. Where do you think he starts this season and how quickly do you think you start to see him maybe be in the plan for the major league team? I think it kind of, you know, depends on, you know, the Orioles now have gotten their hands on him, you know, he's some camps down in Florida and obviously minor league camp starting up in about a week. So they'll get to see him even more. I'm sure he'll end up at either high or double A and the thought of him being at double A is pretty exciting. If, you know, Jordan Westberg and, and Gunnar Henderson are back there as well. And, you know, if Cesar Prieto's in that infield, maybe Jory Ortiz, it, it, it creates a pretty exciting you know, group. And obviously the Orioles want to make sure that all those guys can get the time they need at the positions they want them at. So uh, it'll, it'll be interesting how that'll get sorted out. But to your question, you know, he's a guy who put up great numbers in Cuba, but Cuba also isn't, it's not necessarily the the level of league that say Japan is like, it's, it's not viewed the same way um, throughout the industry. So, it, it's you know this is kind of an outdated comparison that I saw, but I was while I was writing about it, I was curious to see like what it's kind of viewed as. It's basically viewed as like a high A level, but you know if, if a guy hit was you know 21, 22 years old and he hit four hundred in high A, like that would still like raise raise some eyebrows and catch some attention. So he's he's obviously a player with a great hit tool that you know the Orioles are excited to get at the price they got him, and, and so I think you know it's just a matter of coming stateside and performing and 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 then letting that kind of determine how quickly he reaches the majors if he does. Let's look ahead to when this lockout is hopefully lifted uh, later this week. Uh, we'll be optimistic tonight. Um, what kind of activity do you see the Orioles getting into once this lockout is lifted? Uh, I mean, 
free agent signings, uh, playing the waiver wire. We figured that'll probably be you know it's a favorite of Michael Elias, uh, but maybe even a possible trade. Think about a possible trade of Trey Mancini, Anthony Santander. Um, what are some of your, your predictions once this lockout's over? Yeah, I, I do wonder if since they lost so much time in the offseason, if they're able to like get something together so quickly. And obviously one aspect of this lockout is, you know, teams are not allowed to talk to players, but there's nothing about teams talking to teams. Like I'm very fascinated to see like if once the lockout lifts, like trades are just made left and right, like pre-agreed to deals that, you know, the, the teams, you know, cause GMs can talk to GMs. Like they can't talk to their players. And I'm sure that, you know, there's some little under the table stuff happening. It's probably not supposed to be happening, but I am curious to see how quickly moves get made outside of this. Um, in the Orioles case, like I said earlier, like minor league free agent pitching, they might add another catcher. I think that market's been like pretty picked over. So they might just kind of say like, whatever, we can deal with what we've got for two weeks and then call it badly. Um, I, you know, one aspect again of, of the CBA talks is, you know, the potential that they'll have to raise payroll. I don't think based on like the way that those conversations are going, that will be a thing, but it'd be interesting to see how they handle that. Um, you know, obviously the two names you mentioned is, is trade guys and Trey Mancini and Anthony Santander. Like those are the two guys to watch with, you know, them having some depth coming in the outfield. You have, you know, Ryan McKenna and DJ Stewart as guys who can play the position if need be. Uh, obviously Kyle Stowers on the way. And then in Trey's case, you have Ryan Montcastle at first base and they would open up the DH spot pending free agent 30 years old. So there are, you know, it makes sense. Obviously I think the the industry views organizations view Trey Mancini as less valuable than maybe the Orioles fan base does. And so it'll be interesting, you know, whenever Mike Elias has to pull the trigger on a move, which I assume will happen probably more likely in July, let him build up his value, you know, play a strong first half. And then, you know, it's a little easier to say, Oh, he was a rental, you know, we're talking about two months of Trey Mancini. Like this is, that's why we got back this level of prospects. I just don't think that they're going to be able to, to get a deal that the fan base is necessarily going to be excited about in his case. Obviously Santander is coming off a down season and, you know, the, the Orioles believe that was, you know, an ankle injury related thing that wasn't just, you know, that's not the player he is. But when you look at who he is over the past three seasons, not a big on base guy. Um, and so I think, you know, you know, people in baseball are aware of that. And, and so his value, again, is going to be measured in that way. And when you look at his 2020 season, it was like 37 games. Obviously, there are very good 37 games. But um, so I think, you know, those are possibilities. But again, probably more in July when some value can be re- reestablished. And then on the infield, I think they're still going to have some competitions, obviously signing Shed Long this week to a minor league deal. I think they'll continue to look, you know, their their organizational depth at third base isn't great. Uh, Ramon Arias played over there some. You have Calvin Gutierrez, obviously Renato Dorr spent some time over there last year with the Yankees. So they have some options, Ryland Bannon, the minors, and and some other guys, obviously, who are a little younger coming on the way, um, who I don't think will necessarily be opening day solutions. But it's always possible that they, you know, address that through some minor league signings. Carlos Correa is still out there. Still out there, correct. So I'm sure that Michael Elias is keeping close tabs on Carlos Correa. Yeah, I, I said that somewhat sarcastically for anyone who is not seeing my face right now. So, inside source. No, um, so there was an article by Dan Conley in the Athletic today, actually talking about you know with the DH looking like it's coming to the NL. You know what are some possibilities with Trey Mancini being dealt there? And I feel like the same could be of Santander that that could help increase his trade value a tiny bit, whether it's now or you know, like you said, in July, do you think that could play into it at all? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it opens up 15 more teams for for guys to, you know, find a spot for these guys. Obviously, Trey has a history of playing in the outfield, but I don't I don't think he's an outfielder by any means. 
Um, I think he's a, a first baseman at best, and that again limits your value. Um, but now that you know, thirty teams can can trade for you to be their DH, that that definitely helps things. Um, I think it, it it's an added lineup spot. Like if you have no team anymore has like eight set starters, but if you, if you're a team that did in the National League and now you have this open spot and you don't really like your options, it definitely says. It, and the Orioles are saying, hey, we have these two guys who are willing to move for you know the right, you know. For the right right-hander, then like we'll make a move. So like I, I think that anytime that you increase the size of the market, you're gonna you know increase interest. Yeah, and to be fair, most of those deals were were not the most enticing. I don't think Orioles fans would be uh, obsessed with what they got back. And you know, in the midst of all this craziness that we expect to happen once the lockout is lifted, it's pretty easy to forget that we're still gonna have the Rule Five draft pretty soon after. Um, any insight on what the Orioles are planning to do with that first pick? You know. They've had a lot of time to think about it. Are they going to just do what they normally do? A couple pitchers, throw them in the bullpen, see which one sticks a la Tyler Tyler Wells, or you think they might take a shot at uh, maybe a position prospect? I don't really have any insights there, but uh, honestly, amid everything, like you saying Rule 5 draft just took me back to two months when I was like writing about them protecting guys for that and just how much time has passed since then. But yeah, I don't don't necessarily have any insights. Obviously, in the last two Rule 5 drafts, they've taken a pair of pitchers, and like you said, um, you know, two years ago, neither of them made it out of spring training last year, both of them did. And, but then only one of them stuck, uh, the year before that, they took posi- two position players, Drew Jackson and, and, and Richie Martin. And obviously that hasn't necessarily panned out perfectly, but, um, you know, I'm sure that they'll take advantage of that. They've been sitting on, on 38, you know, in, in, on their 40 man roster. So I'm sure at some point, um, whenever that happens, you know, they'll have someone they're targeting, Sure, they've been. That's been a discussion. It sounded like you know we talked to Michael Elias earlier this week at the Paul McCartney announcement, the major announcement <laughs> of Paul McCartney concert. So, and he was saying, you know, there's there's only so much they can do right now, but they are focused on amateur scouting, which is referring to also the upcoming you know major league draft and the you know just developing players at camps and whatnot. So I'm sure that part of that is is the aspect of professional scouting and looking at guys who they who they might take in the Rule Five. Yeah, it's been a long and winding road. How do you think a uh, shortened season will affect the opening day roster? Is it easier to lean on more experienced slash veteran players like a, a Rough Neto Door or DJ Stewart? Or does it give prospects who have been at minor league camp a better chance to win a spot, like maybe a Robert Newstrom or someone like that who could be more, I don't know, into, into their rhythm? Yeah, I, I am very curious to see how they kind of handle things, given, like, to your point that, you know, guys who aren't on the 40-man roster will have been at camp. Um, and that includes a couple guys we were talking about earlier, you know, guys who signed minor league deals like Jacob Nottingham, Anthony Benboom. Like, those guys are going to be at, at minor league camp um, and possibly getting, you know, work with the team beforehand. I, mean, I think the inverse of that is guys like Deal Hall and Kyle Bradish, like guys who aren't going to be at minor league camp and because they are on the 40-man roster and can't participate and team activities, what impact that has on them. So it'll be interesting to see what advantages the guys who are, and obviously, you know, those guys are who are on the 40 are still, you know, doing workouts on their own. And I'm sure before the lockout, you know, they were communicated, Hey, here's what we want you to do. Here's what we need you to work on. We won't be able to talk to you in a week. So like do these things over the next few months. Um, so I'm sure that all happened, but I, I think in, in that case, like it, it'll be interesting to see exactly how that sorts out. Um, you know, in the case of, you know, if the season ends up shorter, I mean, you, I think back to what they did in 2020 and Cedric Mullins made the opening day roster. And he's a guy who I think under other circumstances, if, you know, the season had started as planned in March of 2020, 
Cedric Mullins probably doesn't make the Orioles opening day roster. And then obviously he ended up getting sent back down to the alternate side, came back up, played well. And then we saw what he did this past year. So I, I think, um, you know, those kind of things cause some fluctuations, some decisions that maybe you don't expect. And I'm sure there'll be some of those is once we eventually get there. So you, you've touched on this a lot tonight about the service time manipulation uh, implications with Adley Rutzman. And that's kind of the obvious example on the Orioles roster, but in other scenarios, how do you see the different roster construction situations being if they uh, clean up the service time manipulation versus leaving it as it is? And I'm looking more so at guys like Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Stowers, Kyle Bradis, who are on that bubble AAA in the majors possibly, but we're holding them back wouldn't necessarily be seen as service time manipulation the way it will with Adley. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in the sense that, like, I, th- I think about Ryan Mountcastle, and he's a guy who didn't get called up until August, and obviously that was in a short season, so he got called up halfway through the year, and, and I don't know exactly how, like, the dates sorted out, but it's possible that the Orioles avoided him being super two. I know that the way that Anthony Santa- Santander, like, the way he called him up, they called him up in 2019, like, they manipulated his service time in the extent that he finished, like, between all of his prior years as a rule five guy, like he's got 171 days in the majors. I think he's got like two years, well, three years and 171 days. So he's exactly a day short of, of a full year of service. Like in effect, like when they kept him in triple a back in 2019, they managed to time it out. Like, I don't know the intentionality of that, but it ended up working out that he's a day short of service time. Um, in the case of a guy like Grayson, like I think he's a guy that you consider I don't think he would. He's really a candidate for the opening day roster, just like just based on like how the Orioles managed his innings last year and the fact he hasn't pitched in AAA. Like I think they want to give him some time at the highest level before they they make that jump with him. But he's a guy who you're going to want that extra year of control. Um, Kyle Stowers isn't necessarily in that same level of prospect, but the Orioles have to make that determination. Um, you know, service time manipulation kind of comes in two forms. In that you know you have the full year service time. And then you have, which is another, this is another aspect being negotiated, but the super two service time, where if you have enough service time as a two plus player, you become arbitration eligible four times instead of three times. So you, if you can keep them from being in that portion of two plus players and you save, you know, you aren't getting an extra year of control, but you're saving money in the third year of their career, at least as the game is structured now. Um, You know, that's something that teams I think are also going to try to take an approach to and, that's why we see, you know, the league fighting back against the players trying to expand Super 2 eligibility. And, and so the Orioles might, you know, make a determination of, hey, this is going to be the magic cutoff date. Um, we'll, we'll let Adley be a Super 2 because we don't have any other catchers right now. But with Grayson, we want to make sure he gets his requisite AAA time and that we, you know, are able to have him be a cost-effective player for us um, for the next three years. And so I, I think that that kind of naturally happens, like, that necessarily isn't something that the teams always are trying to do. And obviously the ideal case with Adley Rushman is the Orioles find a way to come to a long-term agreement with him at some point to where that one extra year at the, at the tail end of his team control doesn't necessarily matter. But I, I think, you know, it just depends on the level of aspect you're talking about. Like I, I think when you're talking about an Adley Rushman and Grayson Rodriguez, like you, you take those things into consideration, but at on, you know, the inverse side, if you've got a player who you think is your best, your best option um, and you know, Obviously, ideally, like it's the right thing to do in, ter- in terms of like if you're managing a business, like it's the logical thing to do. But I, I think at, at the same time, like you you make that decision. It's less imperative when you're talking about, you know, a prospect of lesser status. And obviously, 
guys like Bradish and Stowers are still really, really well regarded both in and outside of the organization. It's just a matter of what, what the team decides to do. Uh, some of these other reported changes or things we might see in this new CBA, like expanded playoffs, the draft lottery. How do you think some of these other changes will affect the Orioles moving forward? Since it's kind of a, a weird time because, you know, 2022, no one's expecting them to make the playoffs, obviously, but they should be competing. That, that switch should be flipped pretty soon, hopefully. So do, do you see any big changes uh, coming up for the Orioles or, or any of these big changes with the CBA impacting the Orioles in a major way? Yeah, I think to your point, like ideally the whole draft lottery system doesn't impact them for too much longer. And if it does, obviously that's a pretty big indictment of everything they've been doing. So to that extent, like it, it could impact them in 2023. Um, and I don't think like there are some stipulations based on, I don't know what like the most recent proposals are in this sense, but there are some things about if you've been in the lottery for the past three years, you can't be in the lottery in year four, something like that. I probably don't have that exact, but that was something of that nature has been floated. And so I don't know if it would work like retroactively to where, but the Orioles picked fifth last year. So that honestly might like keep them from having that affect them. So that that's something that will definitely impact them. If, if this, you know, rebuild continues longer past the point of maybe what people hoped or expected to um, on the flip side of that, part of the, the draft proposals, which are tied into the expanded playoffs um, is that the teams who make the playoffs so every team that doesn't make the playoff in both the league and the union's proposal, which in terms of number of teams in the playoffs, the players are suggesting 12 teams. The league is suggesting 14 teams. Um, every team that doesn't make the playoffs is entered in the lottery. Every team that does make the playoffs, I don't remember the exact sorting out of it, but it does factor in how those 12 teams are sorted. Um, in some cases where they're eliminated in the postseason, and in, in the other case is just based on um, – market size. And so in the Orioles case, like they're a relatively small market team. And I imagine in most playoff groupings, like unless, you know, the Brewers and the Rays and some other, like they'll, they'll be in a mix where they'll be pretty close. So theoretically, like even if they win the world series, depending on how the exact thing gets sorted out, like they could always be picking in the top 20 regardless. And that of course matters because then you have the bonus pool impact of that. And um, there could be some structure changes through all of this, but um, and obviously a lot of things are in motion right now and through this week, but the way those two things are set up, both when the team, you know, as the team is rebuilding and hopefully when the team is competitive, then, you know, these things will have an impact on them in terms of how they're continuing to build the organization. What about you guys, the reporters and beat writers? Uh, are you guys going to have better, more access, more clubhouse access this season? Uh, and I know, I think it was the NBA. I don't follow it extremely closely, but I feel like Adam Silver made some comments about maybe possibly uh, reporters and, and locker room access. There's some friction going on there. Um, what's the stance with uh, MLB moving forward in locker room access for reporters? Um, so I think MLB has approved it. We are waiting for MLB PA approval. We just have to be vaccinated and boosted and wear a mask and all those fancy fun things we've been dealing with for the last, feels like forever. Um, and so that, that does sound like it's trending towards happening, which I'm really excited about. Like, I don't know how much it showed up in our content, but it was re- it's been really hard to do this job over the past few years to the level that, you know, me and, and John Mioli wanted to do it. You know, we prided ourselves on getting interesting, unique stories. And that's really hard when you're on a computer screen and obviously access opened up to an extent um, doing some on the field interviews and whatnot. But it's, you know, guys are when they're on the field, they're usually doing something. They're doing batting practice or playing catch. They're stretching. They're doing whatever. But when they're in the clubhouse, like it's usually a lot more relaxed easier to just go up with to someone and have a conversation 
Um, it's easier to do our jobs and to have players tell our stories. Cause I think at the end of the day, like our, like to, I saw someone talk about this in regards to the Adam Silver comments. Like it's not just about like us as reporters getting to be in the clubhouse and like getting that experience it's about the players also having access to us. If there's something that they want to say, or like, you know, I think one thing that's really valuable about what I can do. And that's been disappointing about this off season to an extent like I can dig into Statcast or Fangraphs, and I can like pull out all these numbers, blah 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 blah. But unless I'm sitting there face to face with the player, and I'm able to say like, "Hey, what is? Why is this the way it is?" Like I have some ideas based on these Oriole the Day stories I've done, like I mentioned earlier, that I'm looking forward to when spring training starts. Like going up to someone's locker and saying like, "Hey, I noticed this. Like your changeup moved differently in 2020 versus 2021. Like what happened there?" And so to have those actual conversations is valuable um, insight. You know, it lets the player kind of explain what they've done and it gives insight to the fans. Like, it's not just about reporters. Um, it's about, you know, it's about the players. It's about the readers as well. So hopefully we do get, that's a long-winded answer to say, like, hopefully MLBPA approves, which I'm sure, you know, I don't think will be an issue. There's just a lot of other things, obviously, that MLBPA has to approve right now. Um, but as that all gets sorted out, like, it sounds like that'll be back. And that's just a really exciting thing in terms of doing my job and doing it well. Yeah, hopefully they they do that for you. That would be great. Um, it seemed like when Michael Elias was hired, every all the Orioles fans were on board. Okay, we need a complete rebuild. This makes sense to bring him in. But then, as I'm sure you know uh, from the feedback, Orioles fans' patience quickly wore thin. Do you think the front office should have or could have done more to put a more watchful product on the field these past few years while also making these substantial improvements to the minor leagues, the international spending and infrastructure, the player development or do you think it was just a necessary evil that it, it kind of had to be this way? I, you know, I don't have all of the data and information they have in front of me. Like Michael Elias, like to your point, has consistently said, like, this is the only way to do this. And obviously, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's maybe like I'm trying to think of how to phrase this in the sense that like you can do it faster, but I don't think you do it with the longevity. And so I, I get that like they're not just trying to build like a one year wonder, like they want to be a team that consistently contends in the AL East. And so based on, you know, the history of the Astros, the Cubs, like this is maybe the best way, the best approach to take. I do have people who email me like every time they lose to the Rays, like, well, the Rays have a low payroll and and they, they win 90 games every year. So like, what are the Orioles doing? It's like, well, the Orioles are trying to become the Rays. Like they, they, the Orioles were not even close to being the way that organization operates. And so now they're trying to build in that direction. So, um, I think that it is like, to your point, like people were excited about the prospect of it, but until you're sitting there and you watch your favorite baseball team lose 110 games over 162 game season or 35 games over 60 game season, like <laughs> it's, it's hard. And so like I me and Johnny subject about this all the time. Like I'm pretty sure I'm the losing speed writer in the country. Cause I started covering this team in 2019, like in 2020 <laughs> I covered 20 games and he covered 40. And I think in the 20 games I covered, they went three and 17 so they were a winning team when, when John covered games in, in 2020. So, um, but yes, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to write about. It's hard to watch it. And, and so I get why it wears on fans, but at the same time, like to your point, like you can see the progress happening. Like you can see them building up the farm system and they've got the Dominican Academy and you can see them investing in that. And even, you know, in the off the field sense, like, there are some changes happening at the ballpark and I'm not just talking about like the left field wall. Like, you know, they're, they have the Billy Joel concert. They're going to have the Paul McCartney concert. They're trying to have these different events and make it a area. And there's talks of adding a gambling space. So like 
this is, you know, in the sense of a rebuild, like it's not just the baseball team, it's organization wide. And, and obviously, you know, change is difficult. And right now it's a rough period, but like, there is a vision here. This isn't just like, like you can see if you look, you don't have to look that hard to see the progress that's happening. And so it's, it's tough right now. And I get it as someone who like watches it regularly, but I, I, again, like if you look in the right spots, it's easy to see the progress that's happening. Yeah. What is, you mentioned the the emails and uh, is there a big difference there between like the, the comments that you get uh, and that general vibe versus you're pretty in tune to, you know, Orioles Twitter and discussions that go on there. Is there a big difference between those two groups or is it pretty homogenous community of Orioles fans here? I think it's definitely different. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to stereotype or anything. There are people who like, they're, they're all the same to me. Like hopefully no one like listens or maybe they do. I hope you guys have plenty of listeners. I hope they do listen to this. Um, but like there, I can't, I'm not going to like name names, but I hardly remember them, but all of them are the same. I'm like, Oh, that guy's emailed me before. He's one of the people who there's like seven of them. Who I'm just like, Oh, it's that guy. It's that guy. There is one person who sends like these very lengthy diatribes about our coverage and everything. And that those are not fun. Cause he like emails my editors on those. Some of them just email me, but others like, go above me which i don't know that it accomplishes anything for their sake but it probably makes me feel good i get it like you guys have an outlet like you guys have the ability to hop on a podcast and like say what you want and like i have baltimoresun.com to an extent to to do that and those people have my email inbox like i am just there the verge i'm just there <laughs> baltimoresun.com so like if if that's what makes them feel better is to say like i have this thought about the orioles boom 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 send to Orioles beat writer at Baltimore sun. Like if that's what they need to do, then that's what they need to do. It's definitely did it different than Twitter, but at the same time with anything on social media, like there are people out there who are the same people emailing me in terms of like the mindsets they have. And we all see like the copy pastas from, you know, years ago and whatnot. So it's, it's an experience. It's a fun thing. Like people care, you know, that's, that's like at the end of the day, like it's just people caring and being passionate about something. So the left field wall um, has moving back has been a focal point in the off season. Maybe a lot of that has to do with the lockout. Yeah. But I think it's because nothing else is happening. <laughs> exactly. But nonetheless, it's gotten a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of speculation about how it's going to affect things going forward. You actually broke the story that the wall was going to move back and then have done some analysis on it since. How do you see it sort of affecting the ballpark and perhaps to an extent the Orioles roster construction going forward? Yeah, I, I think the the latter part of that is gonna be fascinating going forward. Like I don't I don't know how often, like I don't know in what ways, like I don't know how to quantify how teams like build the team to their ballpark. Like the the Yankees have a ton of, you know, big bulking right-handed dudes and you add Joey Gallo like I don't know why the Yankees lineup isn't just a bunch of left-handed hitters like honestly because like you just have that short porch out there and obviously like I know why they don't but like it seems like a logical it seems like a logical thing for them to do organizationally and so that's not to say like the Orioles now are going to only have left-handed hitters it does interesting come at a time where like a lot of their top prospects are guys who are at least a switch hitter but most of the other guys besides Kobe Mayo really Jordan Westberg are left-handed hitters. So there's, you know, it comes at a good time for them in terms of what they're doing organizationally or, you know, other top 10 guys or pitchers, which who obviously are going to benefit from that. Um, you know, to your point, you know, this is kind of, this is an imperfect analysis, but I, I found that, you know, if you go back in the stat cast era, so to speak, so since 2015, about one in every seven home runs in the whole ballpark would have been reduced by that. 
and about one in every three directly to that area. So that's a pretty significant change. And of course, not all of those are going to become outs. You know, the hope is that they will become doubles and triples and balls in play be, you know, will be exciting things. And, um, you know, helps to have a guy in Austin Hayes who has played some center field and is really athletic left fielder. And I think one big difference, and that's part of this is to our point about like Twitter, the the number of like opposing fan bases who have been like, oh no, like the White Sox are like, well, we can't play Elo Jimenez out there now. Like that's that's why they're doing this. So Elo Jimenez can't can't play left field for the three games that the White Sox play in Baltimore. So I, I think I am interested to see like the impact it has on, you know, visiting players. It's going to be different. Uh, the Orioles, I think early season, it's going to be interesting in the sense that they won't get like a ton of time to work on it. Like I'm sure that will be a huge focal point in the first month of the season with outfielders is learning the caroms, learning how that wall plays. Obviously like the jut of it with the bullpens is pretty weird. And the Orioles keep comparing it to PNC park in Pittsburgh, but it's, I think a lot more dramatic than that. Uh, I'm interested to see kind of how it plays and what the angles end up looking like. Uh, obviously it's progressing towards, completion but yeah it's it's a dramatic change but you know to the to the point we were talking about earlier like it's it's part of what they're doing it's what they determine you know this would be best for the organization and it's what they decided to execute well and that's you know they're not making these changes down at ed smith stadium correct there's not a plan to construct a similar wall either at ed smith stadium itself or on the backfields right so i think the thinking there is that like for the month that we're there, like maybe with spring training get delayed, they could get both projects done in time. I have no idea. Um, but I, yeah, I think they just determined that wasn't necessarily a work, worthwhile thing. They do have right now a Camden Yards replica, maybe by 2023 spring training. That's something that they're, they're willing to invest in. But again, it's like such like a partial use thing. It just probably didn't feel very like economical, but it, I wonder if in time they'll be like, yeah, we probably should have gotten our players some, some time with that. Yeah. That, that was the first thing that I thought of. We're going to go out opening day, and uh, whoever's going to be out there, even if it is an athletic Austin Hayes, it's going to be his first time. Like, he's going to have like two days beforehand uh, to see it. But um, before we, we wrap up, uh, thank you again for your time here and this uh, awesome interview. But uh, what is your ideal spring training hat for the Orioles? Oh, <laughs> I haven't thought about this. It's definitely not the, the two-bird one. Um, I do like that, that logo, like the inverse logo they, they put out. I think that's basically what every team's is, is where, you know, the bird is black and yeah, I mean, just, I think every team had that like weird double logo crossover a couple years ago, but the Orioles have just, you know, obviously with circumstances that teams just kept wearing them, it's just not good. So it's not that one. I, that's basically my only answer. Like, I don't really care what their spring training hat is. I just don't think it should be like a weird crossover logo for any team. Like it just doesn't, especially in the Orioles case. Cause like, if you didn't know that it was the bird inside the bird, you would just be like, why is that shape like that? It just doesn't make sense. So this doesn't answer your question, but I'm going to use it just as a time to like do a quick aside on how dumb that hat was. <laughs> no, I do like that. New one. It's a hot topic. So I think we had, we had to address it here. On the show. Yeah. Timely, timely. <laughs> I don't know who's going to do the team preview for the Effectively Wild podcast that they do every year for the Orioles, but uh, stealing this from them, predict the Orioles' final record at the end of the 2022 season. Uh, 60 and 102. Set that up? Yeah, that adds up. Sorry. Yeah, 60 and 102. That's what I'll go with. Fair enough. Uh, we got wrap up. We had a couple of listener questions here. We wrap up uh, real quick, but um, from Matt, Matt, he's one of our patrons. 
he wanted to know, have you been in contact with any players during the lockouts? Uh, and if so, is there anyone that's impressed you with their offseason routines or, or any uh, fun stories you've been able to glean from contact with players this offseason? Uh, not particularly, no. I'm excited to catch up with guys in, in Florida whenever that comes along. And, um, you know, obviously, like, the big story that came out in terms of guys this offseason is Cedric Mullins and just what he's gone through. And so to, to learn that, I think, is one thing that was really fascinating. Just obviously so much of the focus with the Orioles last season was in terms of, like, medical situations with what Trey was doing and coming back from it. Um, you know, I do keep up with guys to an extent. Obviously, Trey getting engaged and a few other guys riding Mount Castle got engaged. So that's those kind of things are always exciting and good for those guys. But just, you know, with, with Cedric, in Cedric's case, just for him to have gone through, um, you know, spending the 2020 season basically in intense pain uh, with turn, with what turned out to be Crohn's disease and then coming back in 2021 and being a top 10 MVP finisher, most valuable Oriole, all-star starter, 30-30 season. Like, that's really remarkable. And so I'm looking forward to, to seeing him in Florida and maybe digging into that a little deeper and just what he went through. So another question here from Simpkin Tribute, who's one of our regular viewers. Uh, what 40-man guys will be most affected by the lack of MLB spring training and or the possibility of joining AAA in early April? Yeah, so I, I think anyone, like I think any a lot of the prospect guys, like they want D.L. Hall to get innings. They want Kyle Bradish and Kevin Smith to get innings. They want use Neil Diaz to get at bats. Like he's a guy who I think I'm writing about him. He was, there'll be tomorrow's Oriole of the day. Like he's a guy who just needs to be on the field. And so this, he, I've, John wrote about this a while back, but like he wasn't in any of these mini camps because he was on the 40 man roster. Like he got hurt in the AFL. And so he wasn't able to get make up for at bats there. Um, so he's a guy who immediately comes to mind. I think these guys who are waiver claims who, you know, the Orioles don't really know what they have in them yet. And, you know, Silenal Perez and, Brian Baker, you know, kind of just up and down guys with their prior organizations who, who have yet to really make an impression on the Orioles. Um, it's going to be tough for them to maybe squeeze into things. But I think, you know, the big focus is going to be, you know, these these prospect types who the Orioles want to make sure are getting experience who, because of the circumstances, can't. Speaking of Brian Baker, he will be our guest on next week's show. So well, there you go. For that. <laughs> Uh, here's a question from Brooks Fallon. I have no idea who this guy is, but uh, how do you think the robo call, uh, robo ball strike umpiring will go in AAA, uh, and if slash when it comes to the majors? And I have a follow up question my own after that. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually back in 2019, um, the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs, back when it was in the Atlantic League, the the ABS system, the automated ball strike system, um, and they like they had it and they let media reporters media members like check it out and use it. And so while the pitcher was throwing his bullpen, I was the robo ump basically, like I had the earpiece in and it was very delayed and it was very uncomfortable. And I'm sure that like most of the time that works seamlessly and is not a problem, but like he was winding up for his next pitch when I got, I heard ball for the first time. And so that was uncomfortable. And like, if an umpire, like real umpires are trained, like if they don't hear the call, then say something. I just wasn't a real umpire and I wasn't trained to say anything. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that, you know, they're working the kinks out. And the fact it's in AAA rather than the Atlantic League, like, shows that this system has progressed. Obviously, like, they can kind of go, go back to the left field, like, left field wall. Like, one thing that makes baseball interesting is all the stadiums are different. But I would go against that in terms of, like, the strike zone. Like, I would prefer to have a consistent strike zone. I'm sure the hitters would prefer to have a consistent strike zone. And in terms of what we were talking about earlier with swing decisions, the Orioles would prefer to have a consistent strike zone. So if if the way to execute that is, is that system. Like, obviously I know that the people are 
again, you know, against that and it takes the humanity out of the game. But like people also generally don't really like umpires. So I don't really understand this dichotomy that people have going on. But I, I think in in the full scope of things, like if, if that is what brings some consistency to the strike zone and and helps hitters and, and you know, pitchers better understand. I think one downside of it is definitely, especially when with the Orioles having a guy like Adley Rutschman, who, you know, a lot of his value comes from the fact that he is a very talented catcher who is a good pitch framer. Like that, that skill goes away. Like it doesn't matter how good you are. You're not trying to, you, it's harder to trick a robot than trick a human umpire. So I, I think that's one aspect of this that, that would be disappointing. And just in terms of it, it would just turn a catcher into, it would remove some of the skill of, of catching. Um, but in terms of like consistency for, for hitters, I think it'd be a really valuable thing. Yeah, I no longer have a follow-up question. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Adley thing, so perfect. Look at me. Look at me go. <laughs> uh, last question here. Another one from some contribute, uh, loyal listener, uh, active listener. Was there any pushback within the organization against moving the wall for financial reasons? Uh, I'm not I'm not really sure about that. Again, like in terms of like talking to players, I'm curious to hear like what guys like Ryan Mountcastle and Austin Hayes relative to like John Means have, have to say about it. Um, obviously, so if people haven't seen it, the way that the wall is being paid for is pretty interesting. The Orioles are, it's about three and a half million dollars is the cost of the project. And the Orioles are paying that up front. But the Maryland Stadium Authority, who is effectively their landlord, is has reached an agreement where they will reduce one fifth of the cost from the Orioles rent for the next five years. And as of now, the Orioles lease only goes for the next two years. So basically, it's an incentive to say like, if you want to get the full wall project paid for by the Maryland stadium authority, like you have to be here through 2020, what is that? 2026. Um, and the Orioles have a five year extension built into their current lease. They've already extended it by two years. It was exposed, supposed to originally expire after this past season, expanded it by two years. There's another five year extension and they're working towards a long-term lease now. So that doesn't really answer your question, but like that's, that's how it's being paid for. And um, so, you know, the Orioles are paying the cost up front, but if they stay in Baltimore long-term, stay at Camden Yards long-term, the state effectively is paying for it. I sense another major announcement coming. Is that is that Pearl Jam's music? <laughs> Pearl Jam so, Foo Fighters. Yeah, I was hoping for a lease extension announcement with the Paul McCartney right. news. Now I guess Paul McCartney or Eddie Vedder is going to have to deliver the stadium lease announcement. <laughs> That'd be, that'd be great. Just on June 12th, on stage, just Paul McCartney announces that that the lease has been extended and the crowd goes crazy. What a scene that would be. Oh. What a great time for all involved. Yeah, That would be incredible. <laughs> well, Nathan, we really appreciate you joining the show tonight. Um, our listeners can catch your work at the Baltimore Sun, but uh, tell them where they can follow you on Twitter and what you have uh, in the works here, spring training or no spring training here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Nathan S. as in Scott Ruiz. That's not the full thing. Nathan S. Ruiz. And then, um, yeah, I'm finishing out my Oriole of the Day series. I'm on to some some of the more exciting players, the guys who haven't debuted yet, just looking at players on the 40-man roster. Depending on how this lockout drags out, might might dive into some prospects too, um, you know, diving into their numbers. Uh, minor league camp starts up in about a week. Um, the Orioles have, have announced that, you know, we'll be getting some Zoom access from that. Um, so I, I don't want to be on, this has been fine. This is not a zoom technically, but I don't really want to be on any more zooms anytime soon. But, um, so yeah, hopefully those, those go well and I can, you know, we can start providing some actual baseball coverage of people and 
this week of negotiations goes well and I'm in, I'm in Florida before too long. That's that's the big hope. I hope in a couple of weeks I'm in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. And we we are hoping that you will be in Florida too. Uh, we will be back on the Verge next week with Brian Baker of the Orioles. In the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge and check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. For all the latest sports coverage there, be sure to hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as some of the writers. Bob and I both have new pieces up within the last few days over at BSL. Nick has one in the works now that should be up soon. Uh, so be sure to check it out. And in the meantime, um, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. And we'll be back next week with uh, Brian Baker. <laughs>